Amen. Our scripture again is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 2 and 3. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, this being Communion Sunday, what I want to do is begin with two quotations from an article that's contained within the Reformation Study Bible. And if you have that study Bible, it's well worth the investment. But there's an article uh, around the 27th chapter of, of Matthew's Gospel, as you know, if you have the study Bible, there are boxes where they have uh, shaded in gray and they have various articles on different issues. And so there is an article roughly around the 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel uh, on the sacraments. And so what I want to do is begin with two quotations from that article. And in addition to the two quotations, we want to consider the 75th question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. So those are the three things that we want to do before we look at the text itself. So here's the first quotation. A sacrament is a sacred ritual action instituted by Christ in which signs received by the sense or perceived by the senses present to us the grace of God in Christ and the blessings of his covenant. Again, let me repeat that. A sacrament, because the word sacrament literally means a sacred oath. So what we mean by Christian sacraments, it is a sacred, or a sacrament is a sacred ritual action. And in this instance, what we're celebrating, the ritual action is the receiving of, of bread and, and the cup. And, and in that action, it is perceived by our senses, our sense of taste and even of sight. It presents, it, we perceive through our senses and that is what is being presented to us is that which represents the grace of God in the broken body and shed blood of his son, which is itself an affirmation of God's covenant blessings. So we're not saying that the elements are the body and blood, but what we're saying is that in the sacrament, what we are receiving through our senses, it's, it's in, and through that action, we are receiving through our senses the substance of God's grace as it is manifest both in the body and blood of Christ. Here's the second, uh, the second uh, quotation. The sacraments are means of grace because God uses them to strengthen faith's confidence in his promises. To strengthen faith's confidence in his promises and to call forth acts of faith. So, 
through, uh, we call this a means of grace because through receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper and even in baptism, um, it's, it, is, it is confirming, it is, it is strengthening our, the, our confidence in what God has promised and it also incites us, it, 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 it drives us uh, to acts of faith. Now, I put this in quotation marks apart from the article itself or the quotation itself. It, it, it not only strengthened faith's confidence in his promises and to call faith acts, uh, call uh, faith acts, um, I put in gratitude. In other words, the, the work that is inspired because of our receiving of the supper is in gratitude for what is symbolized in the actual sacrament itself. And so, therefore, to finish the quote, um, it calls forth acts, acts of faith for the receiving of the gifts that, uh, of God that are signified in the, in the uh, sacrament. So what we are receiving is God's grace through Christ. And receiving it strengthens us but it also propels us to walk in light of that faith, to perform acts of faith in gratitude for what the gifts that are received in the sacrament itself. Now, let's look then to question and answer uh, 75 in the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. The question is this, how art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper, in fact, let me back up. I, I want to use I want to use the personal pronouns that are easier for us since we're not reading Shakespeare. How are you admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that you are a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and all of his benefits? So that's the question. How are you assured and comforted through receiving from the table the fact that you are indeed a partaker of the sacrifice of Christ for your sins that has been accomplished on the cross and therefore are a recipient of all of his benefits? And here's the answer. Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him, adding these promises, these promises first, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me, and his blood was shed for me. As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me and further that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. As assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. Now, with, that, with those preliminary observations from the article, as well as with the 
insight that's provided from the catechism itself in conjunction with our observation from last week that the primary and perpetual work of the Holy Spirit is to communicate and to convey to us the, the love of God that is manifest in the grace that is in Christ. And one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit communicates and conveys God's grace and or his love and grace through Christ is through the administration of the sacraments. It's the administration of the Lord's table. And so what I want to do this morning is offer a communion meditation that my prayer for each of us as we receive from the table that the Spirit would enlarge and illumine within us three things that are communicated in uh, the text that we are looking at, which is um, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. And as we pointed out last week, the, the church at Corinth was a church that was full of problems that Paul, by the time he reaches chapter 11, from which our responsive reading is taken, by the time he reaches chapter 11 and he's talking about the Lord's Supper, Paul says of this congregation that when you gather, I don't care what you have on the table, grape juice or wine, you are not having the Lord's Supper. And the reason he says that is because everything, their, their actions are as such, their actions and their attitudes towards one another are as such that they are acting opposite to what is communicated and conveyed in the supper. Now that being the case, what I want to do, and by the way, I, would, I, I find it interesting that as, as harsh as Paul is in dealing with their issues and what they failed to address at the very beginning of this letter, he acknowledges them as the church of God and as being saints set apart in Christ. And so I would argue that, that really what he is addressing in, chapter, in chapters 10 and 11 is really the logic of what he addresses, of how he addresses them in the opening of the letter, in the salutation of the letter. So therefore, there are three things that I pray that the Holy Spirit would reinforce and reaffirm to us as we receive from the table this morning. So that when we leave this assembly, or if you're watching somewhere else, that when this message is over, when you have complete, after you have received of the table and of the elements yourself, that the end result, that you are strengthened and that you are comforted and that you are satisfied in what God has given you in Christ. So three things. Here's the first thing. In the first place, it is my prayer that in our receiving of the supper, that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit would reaffirm to you God's peace. That he would reaffirm to you God's peace. Look at verse 3. And grace and peace to you from God. Grace and peace to you. 
And, and that is what the Holy Spirit conveys and confirms to us as we hear the gospel preached, as we even observe in baptism, and as we receive from the Lord's table that there is no longer wrath upon those whom God has assembled in his Son, that he has reconciled us through Christ, and therefore the broken bread and the cup itself are symbols of the fact that we have peace with God. Three important implications as we pray that the Holy Spirit would reaffirm to us as we, as we gather in this moment, he would reaffirm to us the existing peace that we right now have with God. Three implications. Number one, this peace is a result of grace. Paul combines it in verse 3. Peace and grace. Peace and grace. Because in, in essence, or grace and peace, I should say, grace to you and peace because the peace is the result of grace. You might not think that is important, but there are so many people outside of the body of Christ, and there are even those who are in the body of Christ who think that every difficult situation that we encounter is because God's wrath is turned towards us and therefore I must stop doing this in order to have peace with God. And here's what he is reminding us of. And here's what needs to be confirmed. As we come to the table, whatever else our issues are, if we are in Christ, we have peace with God. His wrath has been turned away. And the turning away of his wrath is itself an act of grace. Brothers and sisters, we all know someone that is outside of the body, someone that is an unbeliever, or someone that perhaps used to go to church. And we hear it all the time, don't we? As soon as I can, and we can fill in the blank, soon as I get myself together as if somehow something that we can do, something from, from earth down or earth up can appease the wrath of Almighty God. Let us have confirmed to us as we receive from the Lord's table that we have perpetual peace with God and the peace that we have is itself an extension and an emanation and an action of divine grace. God sent his son. And so whatever peace we have, it is because of grace, not because of works. Here's the second implication of this peace. Our present peace with God is, it should be the governing and guiding principle as we live in this fallen world. It should be the governing and guiding principle as we live life in the midst of, of this world. In other words, whatever else we encounter, we should, we should encounter it with and, and, and really have God's peace. The fact that he has reconciled himself to us through Christ, that should govern and guide us so that we're not unnecessarily fretful. This is Paul's point in Philippians 4, 7. And he says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts 
and minds in Christ Jesus. So this peace, which is itself an extension of God's grace, should be the governing principle as we encounter life. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be cautious. But it also means we shouldn't be fretful. Because the peace of God is able to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Here's a third implication of this peace that, that is communicated to us through uh, the Lord's Supper as well as through the gospel itself. That our present prevailing peace is the grid through which we, inter- or we filter God's providence, his acts of providence. Our present prevailing peace should be the grid through which we filter God's present providence. Now, Luther called this God's alien work towards us. In other words, Luther was one who in particular did not want to ascribe suffering uh, to God or from God. Uh, And so in order to do it, but he said that even if the suffering hasn't come from God, God can be at work in it. I would differ theologically with Luther on that point because we know that there is nothing that takes place within the created order that does not issue from the hand and will of Almighty God. And here's something that we've emphasized over and over again over these last few weeks, that we live in a cursed creation. And because we live in a cursed creation, oceans will extend their boundaries. Because we live in an earth, in a, in a cursed creation, the earth, the, 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 the earth rocks and reels on occasion and destroys everything above it. Because we live in a cursed creation, There is sickness, there is death, there are locks on our doors. All of these things are reminders, and it doesn't mean that God is not involved. He is involved, but he has allowed the symptoms of death to to reverberate throughout the whole created order. And that includes sickness, that includes man's inhumanity to man, and even his, which is a manifestation of his rebellion against God. But here is what the peace that we have from God through the gospel ought to do. It ought to be the filter through which we understand his hands of providence. We are not able to explain the why of all things. But we know that this does not mean when we see difficulties around us that we can't always process. It does not mean that God God's wrath is now upon us, and it does not mean that he's absent. I think that's one of the hard places of Christian Christian faith, to go to those who are suffering, whether it's through sickness or whether it's through other circumstances, and, and as their faith is in Christ, to say that he's with you. But that's what the gospel does. The Lord says in Isaiah, doesn't say that because I am your God and because you are my people, the waters won't come to you and they won't overflow you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the fires will not rage against you. But what he does say is that when you go through the waters, I'm with you. 
He doesn't even say that, that the waters will necessarily part because I'm with you. But I will be with you when you go through the waters. And when you go through the flames, I will be with you. That's what the, the faith of the Hebrew boys was about. They, when, they told, when, when they told Nebuchadnezzar, that, listen, we, we will not bow. And, and he says, okay, if you don't, then you will be tossed into the fire. And I love the way they express it. They say, listen, we know that our God is able because there's nothing beyond his power. So he's able to save us from the flames. But if he doesn't, because he's sovereign, he will deliver us through the flames. In other words, whether we are consumed or preserved, you still ain't getting us to bow. Because God is at work. And knowing that we are his, knowing that he has removed his wrath from us, that peace that we have with God becomes the grid through which we can explain the rest of his providential acts until the Lord returns. Brothers and sisters, I think this is one of the problems that people have with what we call an overrealized eschatology. They act like Christians can't get sick. They act like Christians can't fail. That we can't become victims of, of this, that, or the other. They act like we are, it's what they call the Christus Victus, the, the victorious Christian life. But here's what we see on this side of heaven. That no matter how deep our faith is in God's saving grace, we still have to go to hospitals. We still have to deal with the reality of tragedy. And it is only with the understanding that his peace brokered to us through Christ is irrevocable. Therefore, when we come to the table, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reaffirm to you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your trials, that whatever else explains it, it's not because God's wrath is upon you. Because you have peace with him. You have peace through Christ. And he said, but you don't know what I did, but he knows. And he knew what you did and what you would do before he sent his son. And now that he has offered his son, he's not revoking his peace. So as we come to the table, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reaffirm to you the fact of God's prevailing peace through the broken body and shed blood of his son. Here's the second thing. I pray that the Holy Spirit through the supper would reaffirm to you your new status in Christ. Your new status in Christ. Verse 2, Paul says, we are sanctified. And we are called to be saints. Now that's, that's something that's worth, worth considering for a moment. Because in some forms of religion. And not only just in some forms of religion. You know in Catholicism you have a path towards sainthood. And, in, and, and even among outside of uh, the, the uh, Roman Catholicism. There are, are people who say well I go to church but I'm no saint. You haven't read the Bible. 
You see, that's, and, and, and listen, I understand what people mean. Because saint or literally holy one, what, what we think about is someone that is far better than any of us. So we, we are so aware of what it means to be a saint and we are so humbled by our own failures and our own shortcomings and we are honest enough to say, well, you know, I try but I know I'm no saint because we know the distance between us and the holiness that we ascribe to sainthood. But brothers and sisters, that is the mystery and that is the beauty of the gospel of grace. That we, we look at the deeds of others and you say, oh, I'm not worthy. But understand, here's what we are. You have been set apart in Christ. And you have been given sainthood. Look at how we always try to re-earn what God has freely given. You have been called to be saints. And so it's easy for us to look at Mother Teresa and say, oh, I could never do that. But do you know that without grace, she ain't any more of a saint than anyone else? We look at the sacrifices that others make. We look at the virtue that is in other people's lives. And we'll say, well, I go to church, but I'm no saint And here is the beauty of grace. Those who were enemies of God are now children of God. And all children of God are saints. You say, but I don't, let's get off of you for a minute. Your sainthood is not about you. Your sainthood is about God's grace. It is about the magnitude of God's grace towards you. And it is about the merits of Christ on your behalf. You think of everything that we would, all of the attributes and all of the virtues that we would ascribe to a person that is a saint. And now you look at it as being fulfilled in Christ and amplified above that. And here's where grace comes in. You see, our sainthood is attached to those two things. The merits of Christ, in other words, he has lived a heroic human life. He has lived, he has accomplished everything that we think saints ought to accomplish. He has done it. That's what our sainthood is based on. But it's not just the merits of Christ in terms of what he's accomplished. Now we see the wideness of God's grace. Because what God has done is he has taken the real merits of Christ, everything that Christ has earned, everything that is true of him in terms of accomplishing in human flesh. God has gone to us, and he has given us credit for what that righteous man has done. 
You're a saint. Now, there are two implications in particular here that we want to consider concerning our sainthood. Number one, it is because we are saints that we ought to pursue holiness. Understand that. We, we, we ought to pursue holiness because we are saints. If you reverse that, you'll never get it. In other words, if you think that sainthood is the result of your pursuit, again, you're on the path of works righteousness. But the point is, we are saints. Therefore, it is our desire to do the will of God. Here's the second thought connected to our, our new status as being saints. Since our practical sanctification consists in confirming our thoughts and our words and our deeds to the will of God, then the only thing that can strengthen us, the only thing that can strengthen us to pursue what our position now says we are, the only thing that can strengthen us for this task or even give us motivation to do it is God's covenant grace in the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Elise Fitzpatrick is a colleague and friend, and she's written a number of things, and I really do appreciate a lot of her work. But I think this is what she meant by her, the title of one book, Because He Loves Me. And that ought to be the incentive for any pursuit of ours to love others, to serve God. It's not so that he will love me. We've all been in those situations, elementary school, junior high school, trying to do something to get somebody's attention so they might like us. But brothers and sisters, here is the unbounded love of God. He loves us first, and it is because he loves us that we are driven to serve him. It is because we have, we have received his love for us in the merits of Christ, but motivated by his own grace. It is because of his great love for us that we seek to bring every thought and every word captive to the obedience of Christ. Not so that we can one day become saints, but because we are. That brings us to a third and final thing that we pray for as we come to the table. Not only that we pray that the Spirit would reaffirm and reinforce to you the peace that we have with God, the prevailing and perennial peace that you have with God. We pray that the Holy Spirit, as you receive of this table, would remind you that you are a saint. Because so many of us, when we come, we'll, we'll be reminded of our guilt. But he says you are set apart and you are a saint. And so as you receive of the elements into your physical body, I pray that you would hear not the voice of accusation, but the voice of affirmation. 
But thirdly, I pray that in this supper, the Spirit would reaffirm to us the vital, grace-empowered connection that we have in Christ. The vital, grace-empowered connection. Paul says we are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of, the, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are not alone. You are not alone. We know that God is with you, but God, and, and sometimes we reinforce our own loneliness by saying, well, only God. But we don't, we don't understand that God with us is physically manifested and are being connected to others. We're not alone. Because what God has done is in calling us to sainthood, he has also connected us horizontally to others who have the same faith. And so, three again, three implications of this, this vital, grace-empowered connection and union that we have. Paul uses this language, by the way, throughout his, his first letter or first Corinthians because he reminds them that we are one body in Christ and that we drink from one cup and break from one, uh, we eat from one loaf because we are one in Christ. But a couple of implications here. One... The fact that we are called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name or call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it means that there should, this should nurture a sense of humility and patience in dealing with the differences and the difficulties that we experience within the covenant community. Sometimes we become too quick to write someone off. Sometimes we are too quick to take offense. And this is a reminder, whether it's in the immediate context, because notice how, how broadly Paul widens the circle here. For everyone who calls upon the name of, a, of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place, you are connected with them. Now, this does not mean that everyone believes the same thing. It doesn't mean that we primary or secondary, but because we don't know the heart, we may disagree with people doctrinally. We may disagree with them on some very important issues, but it's important that we never take it out of our minds that we are dealing with those who are connected to us through Christ, there should be a sense of humility when we deal with the failures of others and even when we find ourselves in deep theological disagreements. One of the things that I'll say this that was helpful for me when I came into the circle of more reform, of reformed theology and those who embrace uh, reformed theology, because I grew up in a traditional Baptist church and didn't know much about Roman Catholicism, and it was too easy to just dismiss them and say they're non-Christian and, and, and to be dismissive of them. 
And then here's the thing that I learned over the years, that the Roman Catholic Church, according to historic Protestantism, is a church that is in error. You hear that? A church that is in error. They once embraced the gospel with clarity and conviction, but they have departed from the content of the gospel message. However, it is possible for people to be in the Roman Catholic Church and be genuine Christians. Doesn't mean their teaching is right. It doesn't mean all of those other things they hold to. We, we don't ridicule them. We don't, we, don't, we don't otherize them. Even as we are not in fellowship, we at least honor the fact that they claim the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we get too we get we, we get too happy to fight. And here's what Paul reminds us of. Yeah, you are saints, but Christ has called you to be saints with every other one who names the name of Jesus. And here's what he's kind of getting across to us, that those who name the name of Jesus, now let's narrow the circle. I'm not going outside of those who profess the same things. Let's walk within the circles, how we baptize or who we baptize. What elements are used, whether it's wine or grape juice? How, why is it that we can be as more divisive on those issues and all of us are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus? Brothers and sisters, the frequency with which we receive the table, the manner in which we are governed, whether it's congregational or whether it's elder rule, those are things that we can disagree with strongly without otherizing the other position. The same Holy Spirit that connects us to the grace of God and awakens us in our sinful state and brings us into union with the merits of Christ. The same spirit that calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light has so pledged himself to the very one that you may have differences on in terms of whether or not music should be played or musical instruments should be used in worship services. We are one in Christ. And I think the language of Peter is that we ought to deem as precious everything that is precious to him. And so I pray that the Spirit through the supper would reaffirm to us the vital grace-empowered connections that we have in Christ because we are called to be saints not alone but together with everyone else who call in every place who calls upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This should nurture a sense of humility and patience when we deal with differences. And even when we deal with difficult personalities. And I've been in church for a minute now. And trust me, there's some difficult personalities. Because I am one.
But not only should we be mindful of our connection and therefore become more humble and patient as we deal with it, but the fact of our being connected to everyone who calls upon the name of Christ should also deepen our sense of urgency and, our, and deepen our compassion in dealing with the hurts and dealing with the needs and in dealing with the circumstances that other Christians sometimes in other parts of the world and sometimes in other denominations and in other parts of the vineyard. That we should, in other words, because we call on the same name and because we are set apart by the same grace in the same Savior, it should deepen our sense of urgency when it comes to dealing with the pains and the hurts and the frustrations of others. It's because we're connected. We should have compassion towards other suffering saints. That's why every church is a missionary church. It ought to be. You don't have to broadcast it, and there are some churches that will be able to do more than others, but we are all connected. And so when one part of the body cries, when one part of the body suffers, it has ramifications on the whole. So whether that part of the body is in our hemisphere, our state, our nation, wherever it is, it's still a part of the body. In Asia, in different Asian countries, in African nations, in Mexico, in South America, wherever people call upon the name of Jesus. So when I hear of Christians suffering in India because of their faith, that's my suffering. When I hear of Christians suffering in China where they can't read the scriptures in certain public places, that's my suffering. I'm not trying to wait, well, I hope it doesn't happen here. No, that is my present suffering. When we hear of churches and Christian communities that are destroyed by opposing religions in different parts of the world. Let us hear that as our suffering. Because, brothers and sisters, we have been called to be saints together with everyone in all places who call upon the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so wherever we are, and wherever the name of Christ is named, and suffering exists, it affects all of us. It should deepen our resolve where we are. If you shut them up, then we must cry louder. And brothers and sisters, we can't, we, we can't mark it off as them and, and, and not be disconnected. It's the body. And the body of Christ consists of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Well, that brings us to a third and final observation here. It is because we of the vital and the gospel-empowered unity that is conferred to us and affirmed to us in the table that it should reinforce 
a deeper sense of covenant and covenant community. In other words, we should be, as we come to the table, we should be reminded that those with whom I share at this table, whether, wherever we are, that we are one. And one of the reasons this is so vital is because we live in an age of, of, of cancellation, a culture of cancellation and otherization. And there are other sources that, we may, that may feed us throughout the week that cause us to, to look in a divisive way at others because of their party affiliation, because of their ethnicity, because of their economic status. And we are all of those other images are reaffirmed that what we see is either an income or we see a statistic or we see a color or we see all of these other things, secondary things that the other world is telling us to define one another by. But when we come to the table, it's we who are the covenant community. Here's what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer. All of those that you have given me out of the world, I pray for them that you would keep them from the world. The, the others, they're not mine. And when we come to the table, let what unites us in Christ reaffirm the fact that this is God's neighborhood. This is God's family. This is God country. And so we will not allow other voices. We will not allow other parties. We will not allow other perspectives to somehow otherize our brothers and sisters. Whatever we agree with or don't agree with with them, we have all been brought into one body in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's one of the reasons that I don't think it's the place of the Christian church to preach Fourth of July sermons or to celebrate Cinco de Mayo or Black History Month because we can celebrate that and we can celebrate it to our fullest, but that's not what Jesus died for. And so what we celebrate when we, that's why there's no, it's intentionally, there is no flag in this sanctuary. Because we, who are blue, who are red, who are purple, have been created into a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And if nothing else reminds you that this is not a political faction and this has not been co-opted by some faction of the culture. When we come to the table, this is Jesus speaking to all of us. This is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. And the shedding of that blood and the breaking of that body 
is the Father in heaven confirming his covenant that I will remember your lawless deeds and your sins no more. And you who were enemies are now children of the Most High God. And guess what? You are saints. And what you'll say is, but you don't know what I'm thinking. He says, I know what you're thinking. That's why my son is here with the wounded body. And you are saints. And if you are saints, then you have been set apart with everyone else who calls upon the name of Jesus. And whatever else is going on in the world, it's not because God is mad at you. He is purging and preparing this world for the return of his son. So I pray that as we come to the table, that the spirit would reaffirm to you the words of Jesus that my peace I give to you and it's yours right now. I pray that it would reaffirm to you that you are a saint no matter what folks say about you. And I pray that this meal would reaffirm to you that you're not a lone ranger, but you've been connected to a body. And being connected, you are being prayed for and you have the obligation of praying for and being compassionate with everyone else who is in this covenant community. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do again come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thanking you for the privilege 